Hello, my name is Tracy King and welcome to the Humanimal Connection podcast. This episode closes series one of seven podcasts, which marked 2021 being the seventh anniversary year of Humanimal Trust. A very warm welcome back to our podcast discussing sustainability, and I'm delighted to be joined once more by Dr. James Bevan and Dr. Simon Doherty as we pick up our conversation. Obviously, there's been a lot in the news recently about the United Nations recent scientific report on climate change. And it says that if we act fast, we might still be able to avert a catastrophe. In terms of being more sustainable in what we do every day, could I ask you both, what could the medical professions do and what could the general public do? And Simon, specifically to you, what could animal caregivers do? And I mean, you know, companion animals, farm animals, horses. What could we do individually and collectively to be more sustainable? And James, if I could come to you first on that question. Yeah, of course. So I think there are plenty of ways that medics can be more sustainable. And I think with any good sustainability approach, the most important thing is to understand where your impacts lie and sort of address where the largest impacts are first. And and these will sort of these will be different depending on what specialty you're in. Um, and uh, so if we look at the NHS's emissions, for instance, we can see that primary care prescriptions are really by far and away the largest area of emissions. So that's looking at Uh, the supply chain, the transport and packaging of all the drugs that get given out at at primary care. So if you're a GP, we know that um, we know that they they have a massive they have a massive impact in terms of their emissions from their their prescriptions that they uh, produce. And they've got, therefore, the largest power to reduce emissions. And it's really, uh, so for GPs, it could be the idea that they need to start thinking, not just does this patient, they need, when they're getting a patient in, they need to think about uh, this patient is on a whole load of medications. Is this required for their health? Which is what GPs do a lot, a lot of sort of uh, checking of medications. Are they required for their health? And are they taking them? And if those answers are, are no, then they also need to think about is this, are these uh, drugs really required? Because it's, there's, there's not just potential impacts to health um, and they perhaps, and cost, but there's also an impact on the environment. So it's really rationalizing whether all patients need to be on all the drugs that they're on and are they taking them? Because the waste is not just cost, but also the, the environment. If you're a surgeon, um, you might want to consider the wastage is in part of your operating theatre. So are you using hybrid surgical equipment? Are you using sort of uh, reusable, uh, other reusable equipment? Uh, if you're a medic, are you thinking about the uh, potential environmental impact of the investigations you're ordering or the Im- environmental impact of the medication you're starting? Do we know the impact of that medication? Can we lobby for the drug companies to provide us with the impact, the carbon impacts of our of our medicines, which we currently don't have for most of them? Overall, um, in the medical profession, like reducing our impact would be reducing would be reducing ill health if we have less 
ill people, then we have less less of a job to do, less emissions to provide through uh, to emit through um, provision of healthcare. So public health, you know, public health event, uh, interventions are ultimately going to have the greatest impact. There's a whole load of things that doctors can do, and it's very dependent on what specialty you're in and where that impact is greatest. And I think, uh, and I think, just as a message to doctors would be, be a bit curious. Where are my impacts? Where where are they? Because they might not be where you think they are. People are often surprised with that primary care, that primary care prescriptions have such a lot, large carbon impact. For individuals, um, what can you do that? Um, is good for the planet um, and I'll, there's plenty of things that we could talk about that are good for the planet but there's also plenty of things that, that an individual can do that are good for the planet and good for their health and this is an idea this is the idea of co-benefits so uh, co-benefits being benefits to the health and to and to the environment and these things include um, simple measures like reducing meat in your diet we know that eating lots of red meat has has significant impacts on your health um, so cholesterol and cancer risk and all, all kinds of other health risks. Um, so reducing red meat in your diet not only improves your health, but would, uh, is also good for the environment, reducing our red meat consumption. Other things like cycling or walking instead of driving obviously has, a, has an impact on your health. You're going to get cardiovascularly more fit if you're cycling to work uh, than driving, but also you're reducing those emissions. So I'd... I'd uh, encourage people to think about ways in which they can get those co-benefits, ways in which they can improve their health while also reducing their environmental impact. And obviously that's relevant to doctors as well. Yeah, that's great. Tracy, if I could just ask one more thing. I'm just going to pick up on a comment that Simon previously made. And he was talking about antimicrobial resistance. What could the human medical profession do in sort of that? What is it doing in, in that, in, in terms of, you know, antimicrobial resistance and, and reducing reliance on antibiotics? Well, that's a, that's a, so I often don't really think about uh, antimicrobial resistance as part of the sustain as part of the work that I've been doing in terms of sustainability. There's been a huge drive in recent years. Uh, and the reason for this is because there's been a huge drive in recent years to really cut out uh, needless antibiotic prescribing and I think in this country we're actually pretty good at it. Um, in, the in the hospitals we uh, are relatively strict about who gets antibiotics and who doesn't compared to other countries. You know in this country you can't go to your pharmacist and get doxycycline over the counter but if you went to different parts of Europe you could quite easily do that. So I think in this country we're doing well. I think it's, a, it's maybe a bit more difficult uh, in other parts of the world where taking antibiotics is perhaps more of a cultural thing. Uh, if you've got a cold you'd take some antibiotics. In this country we've gone, we've gone a bit beyond that now um, and so it's going to be breaking that cultural tradition of just I'm a little bit ill and I need antibiotics. Um, but yeah so that is we're doing relatively well in this country I would say. Yeah, that's, that's an important point you've made there, James. And, and Simon, if, if I can come to you now, you've you've said previously about what Vet Sustain doing and, you know, the, the Green Vet checklist. In terms of the animal caregivers, so like companion animals, farm animals, horse owners, what can they do? Yeah, so, the, you know, there's an awful lot of different things that they, they, they can be doing. And, I mean, certainly, you know, Sometimes there, you know, fads will will kind of emerge. You know, suddenly you've got a lot of people who own cats and dogs that you know 
really quite fancy the idea of their cats and dogs becoming vegetarian, um, which is which is not necessarily in their best interests. Um, you know, they're they're designed to be carnivores, and and uh, you know, it's not as easy for a cat or a dog to have a vegetarian diet, um, for a number of different reasons than it, than it is for you know for people to to become more vegetarian or flexitarian. Um, just picking up on what on what James had mentioned, you know, certainly, um, it might seem a bit of a, a, an odd thing for a bunch of farm animal vets to to agree that you know we we possibly should be eating less red meat. Um, but but actually, one of the things that we're looking at within the veterinary profession is encouraging the public to think about less and better. Um, so perhaps maybe um, skipping a day of of, of red meat um, that you know where, where they've been eating red meat every day. You know maybe have a day of um, vegetarian or or fish based um, diet rather than just having red meat every day. Um, but also then to be thinking about how they can be eating better. Um, so looking at locally produced grass-fed beef um, or lamb, um, you know, we, we have an abundance of really good quality, um, farm quality assured products within the UK, which ultimately are going to be far better for the planet than exporting beef from you know say south america or exporting poultry from you know uh, the, the far east and uh, so thinking about the environmental footprint of of our um of our produce um how it's produced what those animals are being fed are our rainforests being um you know cut down to grow soya to you know produce intensively reared um livestock in a, in a feedlot or you know, are we using the best use of the natural resources that we have? We're very fortunate in the UK that we have the Gulf Stream and it brings warm, wet conditions generally for a lot of the year. And certainly, you know, where I live in Northern Ireland, the Emerald Isle is, is the Emerald Isle for a good reason. And um, we have warm, wet climate, which is fantastic for growing grass. And a, lot, a lot of those areas um, are not uh, necessarily fit for producing a lot of um, other arable crops. So we can make the best use of that grassland, which not only is feeding some of the best quality lamb and beef um, that, that is available to us, but those huge grassland pastures are also acting as a fantastic carbon sink. And where they are well managed, they are actually helping to produce a, you know, a really kind of positive um, you know, piece for, for the environment. They, they, they suck up carbon um, uh, they will, you know, where there's clover in a pasture, it will, it will naturally fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and act like a, a natural fertilizer. So there's a lot that farmers can be doing, a lot that vets can be doing to support farmers in and around regenerative agriculture, reducing the, the amount of concentrate feeding that they're buying in from abroad, reducing the amount of artificial fertilizer that they're applying to land, by using different um, uh, techniques um, to, to, to recycle some of those, those nutrients back into the soil and, and getting really good soil structure. And in terms of our companion animals, coming back to that, you know, I, I, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, 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 the drive towards plant-based diets or even insect-based diets has been, has been a bit of a fad over this last few years as well. It's fantastic looking at all those alternative protein sources for our companion animals. But do you know what? There's a lot that we can gain around good communication. And I think sustainability and, 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 and the role that we as vets and medics play in communicating science to the public 
cannot be, um, you know, I don't think it can be over overestimated. Um, we are still considered to be trusted professions and we have a real role to play in communication. So taking that as an example, um, you know, pet food, normal pet food um, is, is actually quite sustainable in that we're using parts of the animal carcass, which wouldn't necessarily be used for human consumption in the UK. So using a lot of the awful um, and, and recovered meat, which is perfectly fit for, for human consumption, we just choose not to eat it in, in, in this country. Now, we can either export it to countries that will, will eat those offals, or we can use it in our, in our pet food. And, and, I, and I think probably sustainability is, it will involve a combination of both. But, but actually, to that end, pet food is part of that circular economy. We're using what are essentially otherwise animal byproducts um, within, the, within the normal diet. So being able to communicate that to our owners, it's not all about plant-based and insect-based diets. Actually, normal pet food can be sustainable in its own right. So there's definitely a communication part there for us to play as well. Yeah, there's some really strong points you've made there, Simon. J James, is there anything you'd want to say in response to what Simon's just said or anything you want to pick up on? No, that was very interesting hearing about the... Um, sort of sustainable practices in farming and this is something we've been trying this is something that's often lost in the discourse around meat um, is this sort of the uh, the different different impacts of different meats and not just different meats but different su suppliers so as you said getting getting uh, beef from a from a farm in Brazil where the where the rainforest has been cut down is very different from getting beef from a farm in Ireland um, which is using sustainable practices and that that um, those sort of uh, arguments are lost I think in the national discourse around eating meat and it's really trying to educate people in terms of if you are going to eat meat think about what meat you're eating and where is it coming from and where has it been farmed um, because it has massive impacts because a, a cow in this country, a cow down your road is going to have a much uh, less impact than one from halfway across the globe. And so it's really important you raise that. So thanks, Simon. Yeah, you've, you've both raised really important points. And, you know, it's, it's something I mean, I, I have to confess, I am a meat eater. I will always be a meat eater. But I, I think, you know, recently I have become a lot more conscious of where my meat comes from. So, you know, I, I try, I have, I've cut down my consumption, but I think it's like you said, Simon, it's buying the best you can afford, but eating it less frequently. And, and that's what I do. You know, I probably go to the, my local farm shop once a month to get a really nice piece of steak. And, and, and that's it. Before I just go into the supermarket and perhaps every week, but now it's, it's sort of like, it's a treat. I just go to the farm shop once a month, buy a really nice piece of meat. It's local. I know where it's come from. I know what its footprint is. And yeah, I, I think it's that key point you said about communication. Before the pandemic, there was a lot of awareness around the issue of plastics, particularly single use plastics and the impact they were having on the environment. But during the pandemic, single use plastics have become somewhat of a necessity. Can I ask both of you, what impact are the medical professions having in terms of their use of single-use plastics, the incineration of clinical waste and, and release of anaesthetic gases into the environment? And Simon, if I could ask you that question first, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 
Single-use plastics. So I mean, look, there are, there are areas where we can certainly cut down on our, on our single-use plastic. There are a number of, of, for example, syringe manufacturers now that are looking at recycled um, uh, sort of plastics and, and things like that. Um, clearly, we have, um, you know, in terms of our, our use of plastics, I think part of the, the, the important aspect would be how we go about recycling um, some of them. Um, and, and clearly, whenever you are going for a walk along the beach and there are, you know, face masks lying there, you know, on the beach, that's, you know, completely unacceptable. Uh, hopefully none of us would ever find medical or veterinary waste on the beach, um, you know, when they were going for a walk. But actually, there's a really important part there about how we stream our waste. Um, it's not just the, the use of single use plastics, but it's how we go about recycling it. So where we can actually um, recycle plastics. So for example, things like drip bags, um, you know, that have intravenous fluids and, and giving sets, which is the bit that joins the intravenous fluid to the, to the catheter um, going into a person or an animal. If those haven't been contaminated with, with blood or anything else, you know, can we recycle those? Um, and that's an area that we're, we're looking at. Um, clearly cutting down in, on our use of single-use waste. So I talked about, about syringes and, you know, things like um, catheters clearly have to go in clinical waste. But if, if we can separate out those, those different waste um, parts, then that, that, that can be really, really useful. Where we do have to use single-use plastics, again, um, it's, it's do we really? Um, so things like uh, plastic gowns and drapes, can we in fact use um, gowns and drapes during surgery uh, um, and you know head coverings and things like that that can be washed um, and and put back through uh, you know um, kept kept clean and, and and used again certainly what we did in the past um, and I think it's then about determining when we need to use both um, so can we use uh, for for lower grade surgery. Um, can we use um, reusable and, and washable uh, um, gowns and drapes, whereas perhaps for, you know, heart surgery or uh, for orthopedics, we maybe want to, to use those um, single use gowns and drapes. So it's just, again, about refining our use um, of, of, of single use plastics, I think, um, can be can be useful. Streaming the waste properly can be really useful. Um, and looking at where we can um, recycle, um, but certainly there are there are huge opportunities for us to to improve um, our use of of plastics in clinical practice. That's great, Sam. If I could just ask you one final question in terms of sustainability, if there was one key message that you consider that both medical professions need to hear, that policymakers need to hear, and members of the public need to hear, what would that message be? I think there's a fantastic opportunity like this podcast for the medical and veterinary professions to be working together. Um, and, I, and I think the, the public can learn an awful lot um, from different disciplines uh, in the same way that the profession can learn a lot from different disciplines. Um, I think there's, there's a, a great opportunity for us to work together. You know, I mentioned earlier on, uh, you know, about sort of one health and sustainability and what one health is, is I very much kind of see one health as being part of the journey towards sustainability and, and one health that can be defined really in terms of the collaborative approach across disciplines and between disciplines that ultimately has an effect on 
human health and well-being, animal health and well-being, um, and environmental health and well-being. Um, but it, it's not just about, you know, vets doing One Health. Vets can only do One Health if they're working with medics and environmental practitioners. And it's that collaboration that I think will be will be really key. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier on, I think we have we all have a really key role to play around um, the communication of good science um, and, and the opportunities to collaborate together. Um, and, you know, where, where possible, swap notes um, in its simplest form. There's a, a, a great opportunity for us to, to learn from one another. Um, you know, some of the most well-known medicines in, in human practice actually orig originated within the veterinary world. Um, you know, so things like omeprazole, which is, you know, used very, very commonly um, for people that have um, stomach ulcers or have gastric irritation, you know, started off as a product that was being um, created for, um, uh, you know, uh, um, gastric ulceration in dogs and horses. Um, and that is now, you know, wide, wide, widely used in, in the human world. Um, likewise, propofol, um, one of the most commonly used anesthetics, um, and obviously linked to Michael Jackson, but, um, but uh, the whole uh, sort of piece around propofol, propofol was discovered by, by a vet. Um, and likewise, you know, within the veterinary world, we learn an awful lot. Um, we're learning an awful lot at the minute around cancer therapy in, in animals from, from our, companion, our, you know, our colleagues in the medical profession. So being able to kind of communicate, collaborate, talk to one another um, and, and share knowledge, I think, is going to be key in achieving sustainability. James. Simon made some really important points there. So perhaps could I come to you and your thoughts in terms of human medicine? Yeah, no, exactly. So the pandemic has obviously caused a huge amount of waste that we've been seeing. And it's off, waste is often the poster child for people to talk about when it comes to sustainability, uh, because we can see it. We can see the people wearing masks. We can see the people wearing gowns. Um, and we can see the waste. It's quite a tactile thing that we um, we experience. Uh, and it's a great frustration amongst doctors, actually, is the amount of waste that goes on within hospitals. So um, we have to, you, know, you have to wear masks, you have to wear a different gown, different set of gloves every time you see a different patient. Um, and while doctors obviously want to keep, uh, obviously, the patients are at the focus of that doctor's uh, interest uh, it's a, it is frustrating to have to put on new gloves a new gown every time you see someone because you're just throwing it away for just a short consultation um, and obviously the pandemic has created a lot more waste we're wearing a lot more masks we're wearing a lot more gloves we're wearing a lot more gowns um, and so worldwide we're producing a huge amount more plastic waste um, I think that this is, this is obviously a big issue, but I think often the plastic wasting wastage bit is, is given too much credence in the sustainability debate. Waste is waste is a massive issue worldwide, um, but I think we need to. I think as a point of a point of concentration, we need to focus on where our emissions are coming from because that's what's going to affect human and animal health the most. Um, obviously, plastics end up in the ocean uh, and can cause damage to aquatic life and things like that. Um, and so we need to reduce our plastic use, um, but we need to focus more on emissions. With regards to 
plastic usage is very difficult to reduce the amount because you need it we as doctors you have to you have to put the health of your patient in front of you as your primary uh, objective and so it becomes very difficult to know whether you should not use gowns or gloves because really you need to if it's going to reduce infection the bit that i would like a bit more research on and perhaps some listeners out there know a bit more than me but is around the evidence um, about whether plastic gowns reduce infection uh, between patients um, and uh, and whether gloves reduce uh, infection if you're washing your hands well so then perhaps needs to be and you know, perhaps i'm wrong perhaps there is a bit more evidence out there that i've just not seen but we perhaps need a bit more evidence uh, around the use of gloves and gowns as whether they are effective uh, infection prevention um when it comes to surgery and when it when it comes to ppe and surgery and the rest of the hospital there are de there are definitely areas in which we can reduce our reduce our impact uh simon was talking about washable or reusable gowns and things and we see this in southampton we have our operating theaters have uh operate uh, have surgical gowns that you use once the surgeon would use once and in other hospitals I understand that they have washable ones or uh, ones that can be sterilized and you also pe see people wearing single-use gowns just as things to keep them warm so there's a bit of cultural change that needs to be done there in hospitals and that needs to come from both the top down uh, when they're buying these uh, when they're buying their supplies but also from the bottom up people surgeons and uh, anyone working in operating theatres need to pick up on this and report it to, you know, report it to the directors of the hospital, say we're wasting lots here and there are ways in which we can reduce things. So the pandemic has highlighted uh, an issue that has been a problem for years and years and years in the health industry. Some of it we desperately need, we do need PPE, some of it that I don't know if the evidence is there and we need to have a bit more uh, scientific basis behind it. Um, until then, we obviously need to continue using gowns and gloves um, where, where necessary. Um, and we need to just think about where our individual, individually, we need to think, what are we using and do we need to use this piece of single-use plastic? Because it's not just a cost waste, it's a, it's, it has an implication to the environment. When it comes to, and the, I think the other point you raised, Tracy, was around anaesthetic gases. Is yes, that right? yes. Yeah. This is a really interesting topic and, and one that um, one of my colleagues at Southampton has uh, done a lot of work on, um, uh, Tom Pierce, who uh, was, I think, I think he is the environmental advisor uh, to the Royal College of Anaesthetists, has done a lot of work on reducing uh, emissions from anaesthetic gases. And this is another crossover from which medicine could have with uh, veterinary science, is the, the amount of work that's been done calculating the carbon impact of different anaesthetic gases um, and so uh, using using one gas over another has a massive has a massive change in impact so anaesthetic gases are responsible for about two to five percent of the NHS's emissions which is a fairly significant amount and lots of that can be can be easily reduced so desfluorane is one of the most commonly used has almost almost uh, triple the impact of iso isofluorane um, and I'm no, I'm no anaesthetist, so, but I understand that there's very little difference in terms of the clinical, um, clinical difference between those two. And the, reason, and the reason that one would use uh, one gas over the other often comes to cultural differences and people not knowing the environmental impacts. And that is similar to in the 
so similar to single-use plastics is often a, a cultural thing or an educational thing you, you don't know what has the biggest impact and so getting getting that across to is really really important and that's what um tom pierce has been doing so well uh, at southampton and and that's why the UK are anesthetic gas, uh, our emissions associated with anesthetic gases have been reducing in, in recent years. And as a proportion of our overall emissions is much less than perhaps other countries. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think, you know, there's some really common themes coming out there about, you know, much being much more aware about you know, cultural decisions and about the need for education and the need for better communication. Just picking up on that last point, and the same question that I asked Simon. So, my final question to you, James: If there was one key message on sustainability that you think both medical professions need their peers, and you want policymakers and members of the public to hear, what would that message be? The message that I would like people to know is that the or like people to hear would be that the climate emergency or the climate change is uh, is a health problem it is well while we see extreme weather events happening um and while we see uh changing changing patterns of weather across the world and uh, pollution and all these kinds of things we need to understand that the end result is going to be loss of human life or loss of human and animal life as we're talking on this podcast. Often when I talk to doctors about the work that I've been doing about climate change and health, doctors often respond to me with what does climate change have to do with health and I understand where they're coming from because there's not that much education on this which is why we've in implemented this project. But I usually respond by the, to those doctors and say, well, if it doesn't affect our health, then why are we worried about it? And so I think that would be my key message to, to the doctors, to the public, and maybe to policymakers as well, is that this is really a health problem. Climate change is a health problem and the worst effects of it are going to be on our health. And we need to, one, reduce our impact on the environment, um, both as a both as a society and as healthcare professionals, but we also need to think about the future. We need to think about climate change is probably going to happen, and we need to think about how we're going to become more resilient, both as a society to the impacts of climate change. Um, so, how are we going to reduce the impacts? So, for, in this country, for instance, how are we going to reduce the impacts of flooding um, on our populations, and how are we can and how are we going to reduce the and how as healthcare professionals, how are we going to reduce the health burden associated with that? Um, and that's something that we really need to think about both as a nation and globally is how are we going to deal with the health consequences that arise as a result of, of climate change? And we need to start building systems and processes in place that create a resilient uh, worldwide population to the challenge of climate change. No, that's a really important point, James. I think, you know, it just emphasises what you, Simon, have said previously about this need to, you know, work collaboratively, to work collectively, to consider cultural behaviours and the need for education. But I, I think it all comes down to we, we need to think about it in terms of health, you know, just human and animal health. It just leaves me to thank my guests, Dr. James Bevan and Dr. Simon Doherty, for joining me on this really interesting and fascinating conversation about sustainability. Hey. 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 Hey.
brings us to the end of this final episode of Series 1 of the Humanimal Connection podcast. And thank you for listening. We've journeyed overland to South Africa, gone beneath the oceans, learnt about vaccines and discussed the important topics of mental health and sustainability. I'd like to thank all of my guests, Professor Roberta Lavagioni, Dr. Ben Marshall, Dr. Johan Mare, Dr. Claire Simeon, Dr. Salma Anauhas, Nina Malekstik, Dr. Michael James Francis, Dr. James Bevan, and Dr. Simon Doherty. We'll be back in 2022 with Series 2, but in the meantime, we'll keep the One Medicine conversation going as we are truly stronger together. We truly appreciate your support for the work of Humanal Trust and One Medicine. So it just leaves me to say that my name is Tracy King. You've been listening to the Humanimal Connection podcast, and I hope you'll join me again for series two.